Seattle's morning news. Congress is still trying to figure out what to do about Social Security and Medicare. The stakes are pretty high, so I thought we'd find out who's right. <laughs> Jill, can you tell us who's right? Here's CBS business analyst Jill Schlesinger. And, and the debate seems to be, I mean, as, as you've pointed out before, a lot of people depend entirely on Social Security. But my understanding is, at some point, if there's not enough money in the trust fund, the payments are automatically reduced. So something has to be done. And, and the Democrats say, lift the cap on the payroll tax. And the Republicans say, you know, cut waste, fraud, and abuse. So where do you come down on this? So I come down on, first of all, the, the system is not broke. Um, it's Social Security is a fixable system, quite fixable, by the way. What we know is that around the year 2034-5, uh, if we don't change some of the variables that go into the Social Security calculation, that the system will only be able to pay out about three quarters of the promised benefits. So if you were going to receive $100 a month in 2035, the system only could pay you 75 bucks. Okay, that's how to think about it. So it's not a zero. So how do you beef up the system? There are a few different ways. One is you can make people work longer. And, you know, a lot of people love that because they say, well, we're living longer. That's great. But what if you had a physical job? Right. I mean, that doesn't seem to me the best way to do it. I, I mean, yes, you can work longer, you know, 67, 70, fine. But, you know, so I think that that's a tougher equation. That's a tougher variable to shift. Okay, what else could we do? We could raise the Social Security wage base, which is this number on which Social Security taxes are levied. And right now, you know, it's a hundred something thousand dollars. And we could say, well, let's just um, tax for Social Security every dollar up to two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. That's one way to do it. And then the other thing is you could actually change the amount of the tax. You could increase the amount of the tax fractionally for both the individual and the employer, because both pay into the system. Any combination of that will fix the system. So right now, what is the tax base for Social Security? So it is 12.4%, and that means that you pay 6.2, your boss pays Mm 6.2. If you're self-employed, you pay both sides of it. And for earnings this year, that and that um, uh, amount, that 12.4%, is applied to earnings up to $160,200. So, I mean, we could say, like, let's just, you know, again, let's just tax earnings up to two hundred or 250 or whatever the number is. Or maybe we would say instead of 6.2% each, maybe it would be 6.5% each, you know, like so that we could maybe find ways to beef up the system. And that's that is doable. Completely. So anticipating the the what the Republican pushback on that would be, that's another that's basically another big tax increase and tax increases, uh, increase unemployment, they, they kill the economy, et cetera. Did, has anybody done an analysis on what the economic effect would be of either raising the, the income that it applies to or raising the rate? Listen, we have raised um, the tax rates in the past, and it has not necessarily impacted the economy. We have cut taxes, and it has maybe um, been a minor boost to the economy, but not something long-term and substantial. So you can look back in time and realize that most of these quibbles that we're having are annoying and and they hurt some people more than others. But for the overall economy, it usually is not actually a problem. Here's something that's kind of interesting as well. When you think about the system um, and you start to think about like the 
tax rates. I just want everybody to understand that right now, after the Trump administration's tax cuts, we're at the lowest tax rates probably in the post-World War II history. Really? Yeah. Um, How come it doesn't feel that way? Because, you know, when you live in a high-tax state and a lot of things are cut from the federal government, the state then pops in and Uh. levies taxes. It's like saying, well, why is it that college costs so much? Well, when all the states pulled back on funding for college in their state systems, then the universities had to raise the rates. So, you know, something's got to give. I think that um, Social Security is an extraordinarily popular um, program. And so, too, is Medicare. Um, Medicare is in much worse shape than Social Security. Just so where does clear. that, where does, first of all, I just want, just one more thing on Social Security. Uh, the Republicans are calling it a, Republicans are calling it a Ponzi scheme. Is that fair? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, no, because a Social Security is a pay-as-you-go system, which means that we who are paying into the system and working today are actually financing the benefits of those mm-hmm. who are retired. If you think that's a, re- if you think that paying for your mother or grandmother's Social Security is a Ponzi scheme, then go explain mm-hmm. it to them. So that's more like the uh, the pay-it-forward thing in the Starbucks line. <laughs> That's a more positive way to put it. Pay as you go is a system that has been in place for a while. I don't know. I get so angry about politicians and Social Security. It's a math problem. Okay, it is a math problem. It is not a calculus problem. We are not asking you to go. It's it's a math problem. And, you know, when we have more money coming into the system than we need to pay out benefits, we build up an extra little tidy sum. That's the Social Security Trust. And when we don't have enough money coming in to cover benefits, then we start spending down the trust and we go into deficit. It's actually really easy to fix this. It really is. And again, when I talk to CPAs and I talk Talk to people who are retirement planning experts. They're like, I cannot believe how unbelievably low tax rates are. It's shocking. And it is shocking to imagine that in this country that you could earn as a couple $360,000, which I think is a pretty good chunk of change, even in a large, fancy metropolis like Seattle. If you earn $360,000 of a couple, your top federal bracket is 24%. That's low. And Medicare. What is the situation with Medicare? It's not good. That's the one that's a little bit more of a problem. We have a problem with Medicare because medical costs are really high and we don't have great ways of containing them and we don't have a system that is built to contain costs. So that means we either have to charge a lot more for Medicare in general or we have to tax more. But, you know, people always find this crazy system um, mystifying. Oftentimes when people retire, what they do find is that they've got a lot of income, maybe from other sources, maybe you've got rental income. And all of a sudden, the government says, oh, guess what, you have a surcharge for your Medicare. This is like, call it your great aunt Irma. Irma is income related monthly adjustment amount. And What's interesting about that is that IRMA amount is a surcharge for people who have income. And so people who are working later in life and receiving Medicare have to actually end up paying more for Medicare because they're earning money. So what I would say to you is that it's a convoluted system. Um, It is ripe for um, some fabulous tech person to figure out how to um, disrupt and make it easy because navigating the Medicare system is not pretty. So I can tell you it's complicated, it's expensive, and There's not a lot to be getting done about shoring it up. CBS News business analyst, Jill Schlesinger. Thank you, Jill. Thank you. 
636, Seattle's University's, uh, Seattle University's men's basketball team is again making noise in the Western Athletic Conference. It's making some amazing strides as a Division I program heading into the tournament season. With the report, here's Cairo News Radio's Bill Kasarba. It's Saturday night, and a few hundred fans are on the Seattle University campus to watch the Red Hawks play Utah Valley in a Division I men's basketball game. That's right, Division I. Many people don't know it, but Seattle University has been playing in Division I for more than a decade. Some rich history here in Seattle. Um, you know, back in the 50s and 60s with Elgin Baylor schools playing for national championships against Kentucky and playing in Final Fours and things with multiple alumni playing in the, in the NBA. Coach Chris Victor says ever since the program has returned to D1 15 years ago, it has been building. SU plays in the Western Athletic Conference, a division that won the regular season championship in last year. The team is 18-10 and 10 overall this season, heading into its last week. It is preparing for the WAC tournament in Las Vegas. Star guard Riley Grigsby thinks the team is peaking at the right time. Oh, for sure. He's right there. we got some big games coming up. So we able to take care of business. I think we have definitely a good chance of winning another WAC championship. SU plays most of its home games at Climate Pledge Arena with a smattering of other home games on campus at the Red Hawk Center. We love both. You know, Climate Pledge is the best home arena in the country. You know, I truly believe that. It's such a beautiful venue. And to be able to play games there is a privilege for us. And then on the other end, you know, very, very different from a Climate Pledge venue is, is our venue on campus. And we love playing on campus as well. In our minds, we have the best of both worlds. Coach Victor said Seattle University has earned the right to be here. And he hopes this is the best year ever. Not only is this the right level for us, but we're, we're competing at a higher level every year and um, getting better every year and improving. And we're excited about where this program's going. Seattle University hopes to be in the Division I mix for years to come. Red Hawks ball! Bill Kazarba, Cairo News Radio. Seattle's Morning News. This is Dave Ross. If you smoke pot, it might be wise to let your surgeon know before you go under the knife because it turns out the substances in marijuana can change the effectiveness of the anesthetic. Let's page the doctor. Paging Dr. Cohen. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. So marijuana can actually undermine the anesthetic that you're being given. So tell us how this works. You know, we've known for a long time that if you take certain medications uh, before you receive an anesthetic, that you may actually require more anesthesia to be put to sleep. That's because there are, are these enzymes in our liver that break down drugs and they are often nonspecific. So, for example, the enzymes that break down a painkiller may also be the same enzymes that break down uh, a certain anesthetic agent. So if you're taking painkillers before an operation, the amount of enzyme that your liver produces will go up. Uh, and it's going up in response to seeing these painkillers that they're breaking down. So then by the time you get your anesthetic, the anesthesiologist makes a decision based on your age and your body surface area and whatnot. They review your history for what medications you're taking. And people have you know, been good historically about putting down their pain medications, blood pressure, whatnot. But historically, people haven't put down THC or marijuana use. And so 
when you have more enzyme, you may require more anesthesia. Well, now anesthesiologists are sort of finding unknowingly that there are some patients who are requiring more anesthesia than what they would expect. And what they're finding out sort of after the fact is that a lot of these people are, you know, regular consumers of THC. Now, this wasn't a problem historically, and there isn't a lot of data on it because marijuana use was not legal in the United States. It wasn't readily available. And so the number of people who were actually using it was a small number. But now that it's legal in many states and uh, people are using it much more openly and much more widely, now there's a lot of people who are actually requiring uh, more and more anesthesia than what had been expected pre-anesthesia. It's not that's surprising because THC, the active component in marijuana that makes you high, also is broken down by these liver enzymes. So now they're recommending that if you're a user of THC or a user of marijuana, you tell your anesthesiologist in advance. So in other words, if you, if you have levels of THC in your body, it has activated the liver, which is therefore it more rapidly processes the anesthetic. Is that what's going on? That's exactly right. The other thing and the other reason it's important is there was uh, one study that showed that the amount of medication that was required to control pain, the amount of painkillers that were required postoperatively was significantly greater, like 25 to 40% greater than people who didn't use uh, THC. So what's happening is, is that you're essentially sensitizing your liver to being exposed to other drugs, in this case, anesthetic agents and painkillers. And if you don't let your doctors know that in advance, you may require more anesthesia than expected, and you may not have adequate pain relief afterwards. By the way, as a cardiac surgeon yourself, how do you know that the anesthetic isn't working? So you don't wait till the guy says, ow, that hurts. I mean, how do you know? Well, honestly, I think for most surgeons, it's not, we're not really the ones responsible for it. It's actually the anesthesiologist. And they, I mean, there is a small percentage of patients who will have some degree of recollection of what happened during the surgery. But the anesthesiologists are, you know, monitoring patients. So they're monitoring their heart rate. They're monitoring their blood pressure. They have other devices for monitoring level of sedation. But, you know, if a patient's getting surgery and suddenly their blood pressure and heart rate starts going up, it means that they're experiencing pain. Uh, and so then the anesthesiologist will give uh, more medication. So the issue isn't if you're a THC user or a marijuana user that you're necessarily going to wake up uh, during the operation, but rather that the anesthesiologist needs to be prepared to give a greater amount of medication and be more closely monitoring you to make sure that you're not showing signs of discomfort or waking up so that they can react quickly so you don't experience any negative or have any negative recollections. And so how much, how often do you have to smoke marijuana or, or take these substances for, for it to have an effect on the anesthetic? I don't think that's well understood. First of all, most pharmaceutical drugs that we use have relatively short half-lives, meaning that when you take it, if you were to check blood levels on a regular basis, that if you have a short half-life, that could be you know seconds, minutes, or even a few hours later. If you gave 10 milligrams of something, there's only five milligrams left in the body. But drugs like THC are actually fat-soluble, so they're actually absorbed into the fat cells, and they have very long half-lives, mm -hmm. and can be found in the urine or in the bloodstream for you know many days, in some cases weeks, or even months uh, later, depending on your body composition and the amount that you use. 
So it's it's more complicated with a, a you know something like this, a natural substance that isn't really hasn't been historically regulated in the same way as pharmaceuticals, where it has a very long half life and can appear for a long time. Whereas if you take a typical painkiller, like a narcotic painkiller, like a you know a Percocet or an OxyContin or something like that that hasn't been designed for extended release, you know, the half-life of that is only going to be a couple of hours. Dr. Gordon Cohen, MD. Dr. Cohen, thank you. Thanks, Dave. This is Seattle's Morning News. Time for this week's edition of Crime and Punishment. There are certain types of photographs which you are not allowed even to possess on your computer, and if you're caught with them, you can get in trouble. So for this week's edition of Crime and Punishment, we're going to talk about that with Casey McNerthney from the King County Prosecutor's Office. This involves a defendant by the name of Matthew James Tate. Tell us about this case. Well, this was a case that started back in November of 21 when the King County Sheriff's Office was contacted by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And they had been contacted by Google because companies just like Google look for images of child rape or child sexual abuse that are uploaded to Google Photos or um, any of their platforms. And then when they find those, which unfortunately is every day, then they alert the National Center and they contact the local authorities. And then from there, what the King County Sheriff's Office did was they reached out to a judge and got a search warrant and searched his devices and found out you know where this guy was and then from there found multiple images and videos on his devices of this really terrible crime from there the sheriff's office referred to us he he was charged with having those images of of child sexual abuse and then on, on friday he was sentenced for that how much did he get well, the range is a lot less than what people think it is. And this is a guy who already has a previous conviction out of Pierce County for first-degree child rape and then some other crimes as well. Even with that, the range that state lawmakers has set is 26 to 34 months for the, the current case out of, out of King County. So on Friday, he was sentenced to 30 months and then an additional 36 months of community custody. But in addition to that, what prosecutors argued for is that this is – you know, we said this is a guy who can't be around children unless there's a clear plan and approval from the Department of Corrections once once he's out. And then also, we don't want this guy, and the judge agreed with this, having access to the Internet without some kind of filter that is approved by the Department of Corrections. Cases like this are handled by Senior Deputy Prosecutor Laura Harmon out of our office, who also can file cases as a special U.S. assistant attorney and so can charge people at the federal level as well. And she sees these cases every day. They're some of the worst of the worst crimes that we see. And here's her describing the volume of the number of cases that come in statewide. It's a phenomenon that society is generally aware of but doesn't necessarily understand how prevalent it is. And the Seattle Police Department is the clearinghouse for all depictions crimes for the state of Washington. So they all go through there before they go out to outside agencies. In one day, we could receive as many as 400 tips to the Seattle Police Department for depiction type offenses. And from those 400, it could be um, one different user across multiple different platforms um, with hundreds to thousands in their collection. So when we get a tip, it's really just the tip of the iceberg and it's up to the detectives to investigate it from there. 400 tips a day. And are these coming from from websites like Google or I, I can't conceive of that many tips. Yeah, from Google and Microsoft and Dropbox and places like that. Anywhere where you can upload photos, you're almost certain to see images uh, or have reports of images of child sexual abuse and child rape come in. And, and I asked her what the low end was, and she said it's around 100 a day on mm. the low end. So it's, it's really, I mean, 
the one way that that's kind of reassuring to think about it is if you look at how many millions of people are in Washington State, but still, a hundred to four hundred a day is that's really disturbing. Yeah. The other problem here is that at, at at some point, as you point out, this is a relatively brief sentence. He will be out, and then he's got to live somewhere. And neighbors just don't want people like that living in their neighborhood. Right. And and that's where you know it is hopeful that if his sister supports him the way that his defense attorney has said that that she does that maybe there's hope there. But you're right. There's there's many people like this who do just go back out and don't have that support system or the mental health treatment that they may need, and and then it, it cycles again. All right. The other type of crime that uh, really gets people riled are, of course, retail thefts, shoplifting, sometimes organized shoplifting. And you have a, a sentencing in one of those cases as well. Yes. Honorio Patron is a 34-year-old guy. This was a case that happened at the Home Depot in Bothell. So he stole some tools and a can of spray paint. When they tried to stop him, that's when he flashed what they thought was a gun um, and then dropped it when Bothell police responded right away and, and then captured him. Most crimes, when you when you steal even several hundred dollars worth of, of tools, uh, that under the law is a misdemeanor crime. But when you pull a gun or what looks like a gun or a knife or what looks like a knife and you threaten someone with that, that can escalate it to a, a felony crime right away. Even though the, the items that he took were only 115 bucks, you know, what, once you get that what looks like a gun involved, it, it escalates very quickly. The range for him uh, was three to eight months in jail. On Friday, a judge sentenced him to 83 days credit for time served and uh, 12 months of community custody. And also, I know that you always want to know about the, the, the root causes. Yeah. Uh, the judge on Friday who sentenced him said, you, you've got to get an evaluation for substance abuse and alcohol abuse or, or, or use and follow w- whatever terms evaluation tells you to do. And that's part of, of the court order too because very often we see people who have those problems committing these crimes. That's not an excuse, but it, as part of the sentence, you've got to address that too. Yeah, so he was supporting a habit is the bottom line here it's unclear from the court docs from the cert that we got from police but if that was the case and they'll address that too yeah so how how often do you actually charge burglary cases we average about three a day every business day there was in the last six months there was 413 burglary cases both residential and commercial and just over half of those were commercial burglaries and there are even more that are being investigated by police and so it even though you don't hear about them all the time they certainly are being charged because it's it's so frustrating when you see you know we don't want to see businesses leave seattle or king county and and um it's it's one of those really prolific crimes but we're pretty prolific in filing the charges too and I, i understand that if a business owner wants to know the status of a a case or what whatever happened uh, to that defendant that ripped him off, you can supply that information to them? Yeah, have them call me. I'm happy to help out. There's plenty of times where we hear from people who feel like there's no you know, no one reaching out to them. But if they have an incident number or a name and say, whatever happened to this case, and it, whether that's in Seattle or anywhere in King County, we can find out if it came to us and if it did, where it is in the process, or maybe it's still being investigated by police and we can connect them with who's handling it. Yeah. Uh, do you get many requests? I mean, do do people really want to know or do, do they just want to forget about it? Well, usually what we get are people who say, why the heck didn't you do anything about this? Um, and then we'll, we'll say, hey, we don't have the case yet. Or um, very often we say, we did. Here are the charging documents. And it the court system can be so 
tricky and confusing of how to get court documents. It's probably two or three times a day we hear from people saying, hey, wh- whatever happened with this case? And it's it's very often reassuring one way or the other to know that we did charge it or that we're still paying attention and, and that the case is still with police. Casey McDurthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Casey, thank you. Likewise, Dave. Thanks a lot. And now your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Of course, on Mondays, we like to share from the king of kindness, CPS's Steve Hartman. When Lincoln East High School football phenom, wide receiver Malachi Coleman announced he'd be playing for Nebraska next season, it was the completion of the ultimate Hail Mary. Twelve years earlier, Malachi's mother left him and his younger sister by the side of the road and never returned. Malachi suffered abuse in the foster system until eventually he and his sister were adopted by a loving family. But so much damage had been done. He was a broken kid. Parents, Miranda and Craig Coleman. Like he lived for today and only today and nothing mattered. A mean and selfish jerk by his own admission who refused to do anything kind for anybody. Yeah, because nobody had really helped me up to that point, you know. So why should you help them? Yeah. So when the Nebraska School Activities Association ruled that high school athletes could now profit off their name and likeness, it came as no surprise that Malachi was first in line. The shocker was how he planned to spend it. Never could have predicted. No, it was his idea. They say Malachi walked into this local restaurant and offered to promote a burrito on condition a portion of the profits go to one cause. Put it towards um, advocating for the foster care system. Nick Maestas is the owner. How would you not want to be on board with that? This kid's remarkable transformation actually began a few years earlier after an hour-long argument in which Miranda insisted he do something selfless. Uh, Yeah, I threw out at least 100 ideas of things he could do. And exasperated, I finally said, what about holding a door? Can you hold one door for one person? And he finally was like, I can hold a door. The next day at school, he held a door. Then another and another. At church, he held the door for the entire congregation. Till now, he says kindness is his passion. I'm his new. So you're saying all this charity stemmed from you holding a door for someone? Yes, because once I realize how good it makes me feel to help other people, it's just something that I knew that I wanted to continue in my life. Hopefully opening many more of the most important doors. The ones leading to a forever family. Steve Hartman, On the Road in Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, it's still uh, still February and it's still going to be winter, despite what you may have thought. Ted Beener, in addition to being our uh, traffic reporter this morning, is also a veteran meteorologist. So what about this cold snap we see coming? What's shaping up here? Well, let's 
talk what's happening in the next 24 hours or so. So we've got a very strong weather system moving through. Not only the winds that Colleen's been talking about extensively throughout the morning, that'll uh, ramp up late today into tonight, especially up in the North Sound, uh, but also the uh, snow up in the Cascades. We've got a uh, a warning up there for that. Uh, but right now the snow levels are right around 4,000 feet. So I've been checking the cameras. It's snowing like gangbusters up there at Stevens, but uh, it is raining hard up at Snoqualmie Pass right now. It's also raining at White Pass. But those snow levels, after this system comes through here tonight, they're going to be dropping down well below the pass levels and it's going to continue to snow up there. And that's why we have the high avalanche uh, situation, the dangerous situation at this particular point. You get this heavy, wet snow up on those steep slopes and simply put, gravity is going to play <laughs> a role here. So it wouldn't surprise me that you know some of our mountain pass highways may be closed for for a little while while they do some avalanche control, knock the snow down, clear it out, and then let the traffic resume from there. And then what's coming ahead? Well, as Nick has talked about this morning, he's absolutely right. We've got, after the system comes through, we're going to get a lot of cold air coming down out of the interior of British Columbia through the Fraser Canyon. Um, whether we're going to get any snow or not, just it really boils down to how much moisture is left by the time the cold get, air gets here. I suspect there'll be some some locations with a little bit of a snow here and there. By the time we get into Wednesday morning, then the skies are going to clear out. We're going to have highs in the 30s for Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Uh, lows down in the 20s. Some of the outlying areas down into the teens. Ooh. Yeah, winter is still here. It's just a nice subtle reminder that that's the case. Mm. Um, so no real snow threat through the rest of the week until we get towards the weekend. And then we're going to start a transition back to a more moderate uh, weather. Uh, and that's when we might have another threat of some lowland snow as we make that transition, that'll turn over to rain and our temperatures will warm up into the 40s by the time we get into Sunday. So, yeah, you talked about this being a roller coaster. Yeah. Well, let's see, rain, wind, <laughs> snow in the mountains, falling snow levels, yeah. cold air comes any in. Any chance that cold air is going to freeze whatever moisture has fallen? Do we have any threat of ice? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because okay. I don't think the roads will dry out by okay. the time we get those freezing temperatures by Wednesday morning. So, yeah, that's something to look for is the, the potential for some spotty, icy conditions, particularly over overpasses and bridges and places like that. Thank you, Ted. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.